0: Welcome to your breakthrough blueprint. I'm your host, Becky Osté, a wife, mom, and trauma-informed marriage coach. After a decade of trying all the mainstream modalities of healing to save my marriage, I found myself two kids later separated and on the verge of divorce. That's when I stumbled upon the unconventional game changer of somatic work that not only resurrected my dying marriage, but bled into breakthroughs in my parenting purpose, spirituality, health, wealth, business, and more in just six months. My intention with this podcast is simple through every weekly episode my goal for you is that one you realize how insanely collective our struggles are that you're not even close to alone two that you can laugh a little because god knows we need it and three that you walk away with actionable advice on how to design your unique blueprint for your breakthrough life so get your earbuds in grab your coffee so you can sit back relax and enjoy today's episode Hello, my friends. I'm so excited to have a twin Enneagram one with me on the podcast today. Courtney and I have connected right off the bat. We have so much in common, so much, including the conversation we're going to talk about today. And there is a trigger warning today. We're going to be talking about addiction and living with somebody with addiction. So if you feel like that's not going to support you, feel free to save this for a later episode or pause right here and skip out completely. But we're going to get real today. We're going to get vulnerable. And Courtney, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thank
1: you so much. I'm so incredibly excited to be here and just I love how much a month ago we didn't even know each other and we're connected, right? That's so crazy.
0: I love it. I love it so much. So tell us, tell the people who you are a little bit
1: about you. Perfect. So I'm Courtney Winsicki. Very weird, difficult last name. (laughs) I live in the state of Ohio. I've lived here my whole life. I am married. We have a almost 5-year-old little boy and then in about 30 days we'll have a second a second boy with a we have a scheduled C-section so we have a date. This <laughs> feels really good and exciting. I am a podcast host, I'm an entrepreneur. I have worked at home full-time for myself for a little over a year, which is such a blessing because I dreamt about it for years. And I am somebody who is really passionate about, aside from what I do in my business, just mental health, people who struggle with addiction, things like that. So I'm excited to have that conversation. It's a weird thing to say you're excited about, right? But it it's so therapeutic sometimes to come back and talk about that type of stuff.
0: 100%. Anytime you go through something that's either earth shattering, traumatic, like something you thought was going to wipe you out any time you can talk about it in retrospect it feels a little bit more okay it's a reminder i have survived this and not only that but if i can use my story as healing balm for somebody else then it brings in some purpose along with it so i would love to hear your story just i know we've talked offline a little bit but just letting those listening know what's your story of living with
1: someone who's been slipping away in their addiction Oh yeah. So for me, I have two family members that experienced this and it started, let's see, the, I have two younger sisters. One of them struggled, one of them did not. And I was about 15 when all of this began. So for my sister, what's crazy to think about now, especially as a mom is my sister started getting into drugs and alcohol at 13 years old. And I can't wrap my head around that as a mom now, right? With a five-year-old, mm-hmm. the just the how, the where, the when, the why mm-hmm. of that. Um, it wasn't really evident to me. Let's see, she was thirteen, I was fifteen. <clears throat> Probably took a good year or two before our family realized what was going on. Obviously, I think as most teenagers would, it was try it, it was hidden um, as best as it could be. But for her, for my sister, it was really multifaceted. Like it was everything from alcohol to marijuana to heroin, which eventually ended up being like the, um, as it is unfortunately for most people, like that's a super strong drug. And then around the time I was 17 is when my father's alcoholism kind of came to light now it had been something that apparently was in existence but my mom did a very good job of hiding and protecting us from that really just a really bad i guess the story is short so i'll share it when i was in the summer between junior and senior year of high school we in in the town that i live in we had the local pageant there's like the miss ohio's and the miss americas and we had um, what's known as the Miss Ontario pageant for um, our high school. And I participated in it and very great experience. I, I ended up winning. I was speaking to Miss Ontario. Wow. Right? Miss Ontario 2007. <laughs> God, that seemed so long ago. But so he, what happened was, so he, as I'm going through the whole pageant, it's they do it all in one day. I'm assuming my father is in the audience. Right? Why would I assume otherwise? My grandma and grandpa, my sisters, my mom, the guy I was talking to at the time, like all that. Um, And when it came to I won, and then everybody comes up on stage to congratulate you and do the pictures. My dad wasn't there, and my mom obviously didn't want to ruin my moment. She said, "We'll talk about it when we get home. We'll talk about it when we get home." And then the drive home was. My dad earlier that day had a golf outing, like a golf tournament. He's a very good golfer. And that was a lot of the times when he would drink and he apparently drank to a point that he had either forgotten about the pageant and, or just couldn't get himself there. And he ended up realizing that he was too intoxicated to drive. So he, attempted to walk from where he was golfing to where my high school was, where the pageant was, which realistically, that's, there's no way, right? It's not like it was like around the corner or around the block. It was like what, miles? Mm, Yes. No way that even a person who wasn't drinking, that walk and ended up passing out. And then my grandpa found him in the woods near our home. And it was like, I literally, I don't know if it was because of the, I don't know. So I I get home and my mom's go, you can go see your dad, go talk to your dad. And there was this whole big thing where I'm literally in like a ball gown. I have a crown on my head. (laughs) (laughs) I'm carrying my flowers and I walk into my, to my parents' bedroom and my dad is just sitting on his bed sobbing, Oh, see him look up at me. God to see your daughter like that and to know I just missed this Mm. it was in that moment that when I don't know behind the scenes if it was my mom gave an ultimatum or what it was but at that time my dad then embraced me and my other two sisters and was like I've had a problem and I'm recognizing it and I'm we're done I'm stopping and then he continued to go on to be sober for five years after that day when it really sucks that's how it had to go down But then what's also interesting is I say five years and my dad is still with us. It's now this interesting dynamic of in the five years after and since then, my sister's addiction began to take toll, as well as other things, on my parents' marriage, which they then separated because of. And then after they separated, my dad began to drink again. But for the last decade or so, it's been managed which we can that's a whole thing so that was a lot of talking there I'm sure that there's something you want to man
0: Courtney into a little bit <laughs> on one hand I feel speechless that's a that's a heartbreaking just like I felt like I was pulled into that and picturing you as a little high school girl and just the irony of like how celebratory that should have been and so I'm curious, before we dive deeper, because you mentioned Enneagram 1, for those who don't know Enneagram, it's like the good girl persona, the perfectionist, The do you feel like any of your upbringing has played into you being a 1?
1: A hundred percent, yeah. It's so funny because I, I think I learned about the Enneagram in like 2020, 2021. And with the Enneagram, it's different than human design and that your Enneagram can change over time. But I feel like there's always been this part of me that was like that because even in, so in high school, the fact that I like participated in and won this pageant, I a hundred percent was that girl. Uh I was class president. Oh my gosh. I won the pageant. I was in like the Bible study club.
0: (laughs) Wow. I love it.
1: I was that, I got good grades. (laughs) (laughs) I I was a, right? I was a one. Oh yeah. Like the best one. (laughs) (laughs) And that's also always interesting. And I've had multiple times in therapy where I've talked about how, gosh, isn't it so interesting too that my parents had three children. And one of them was like in deep with a drug addiction. And honest to goodness crossed my heart. I've never even tried a cigarette before. Like your girls, I'm squeaky clean. Uh uh Uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. And so that that boggles my mind. I'm like, how can we grow up in the same environment, have the same life? And she had, she felt the need to turn to that and got sucked into it. And I never even felt a desire to try. Do you feel like you have an answer to that question? I was on a coaching call last night where we talked about regulating of the nervous system. And I'm trying to remember how the woman articulated it, but it essentially made me realize that people in the same environment can truly experience something very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, One example she was saying was like, sometimes people have trouble with their memories of their childhood. And I remember a lot. I remember a lot of very particular details. Whereas my sisters will say, I don't remember that. And I think what happened was as the oldest... I don't know if it was like a motherly instinct that I took on, but so what essentially, particularly my sister, the middle child did who struggled with addiction was I'm realizing is she was essentially blocking things out, right? Putting up these walls. Um, That's the most clarity that I've got Mm -hmm. around it right now.
0: It's fascinating. It's exactly what you said, like same exact environment, same parents, um, completely different ways of coping
1: with that environment. Yes, yeah. Coping mechanisms, hundred percent.
0: So I'm curious, what were your coping mechanisms? How'd you deal with, would you say the pageant, the, the Bible study, that all the things was your way of coping or what else comes to mind?
1: Yeah, definitely be just being involved in things. But what's also so interesting is again, at the time I wouldn't have been like, oh, I'm achieving all these things or doing all these things to cope with craziness that's going on at home but I totally see that now. And then ironically, what we were just talking about offline is writing. I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of poetry in high school. And that for sure was therapeutic for me to be writing. Um, just and not even necessarily about what was happening, particularly like with my sister, with my dad, But just just writing in general, sharing feelings. And I was always, my parents did raise us like in faith and we went to church on a regular basis. And I definitely don't want to discredit that was extremely helpful as well. Like the youth groups and things like that, where it was very, God, I was trying to think the other day of when the first time I went to an AA meeting or an NA meeting was like as a support system. And I was in high school. That's great. You know what I mean? I was regularly attending AA meetings in high school. With your sister or your dad? Both. Or both? Like together, the three of you? My mom sometimes would have the whole family go, which, wow. in retrospect, I think was super powerful. Again, as a mom now, I think of these things. I'm like, God, what would I do in that situation with my son or whatever? But my 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 dad, we would very regularly go to AA meetings with him and or the other, oh, what is that, Al-Anon? I'm familiar, you're familiar with Al-Anon or those, which that's the meetings that's strictly for the family members, the friends. We would go to those probably more. Definitely. And then a lot of my sister's journey was, unfortunately, she had to do it solo because we, I say we, my parents, would send send her away to rehab. So that was when you go to these meetings and use church and stuff, my dad was definitely just more like, an outpatient type of situation where he took care, mm-hmm. he took care of it and handled it on his own. And it was literally like that day, the day where he missed my pageant, it was a hard stop. It was a hard stop. He can cont- he stayed sober for five years after that. My sister, we had three or four different times where she would get sober for maybe three months, six months, a year, and then have these relapses. So, for her, and I think there's a different dynamic of an adult versus a teenager going uh-huh. through it. And yeah, I think there was one time in it was the year I graduated college, and my sister was away at rehab, and it was a really serious one. Like the only way we could communicate with her was writing letters. We couldn't even call. Wow. And the guy that I was dating at the time, Passed away in a car accident, and I remember all I wanted to do was talk to my sister. And I remember the facility that she was at. Let me, oh. I wanted to call her, and that was just like a huge. God, that was just a bit like just getting to hear her voice on the phone, and then obviously explaining to her, like, Jeff was in a car accident, blah blah blah. Like it was just. Oh my gosh.
0: So you guys remained close through all of this? What, how did. would you describe your relationship
1: with her? Yeah, gosh, somewhere, and I haven't thought about this in years, but somewhere like I have the letters that we wrote back and forth mm. together. I think we're also very close in age. We're about 18 months apart. Whereas like my youngest sister, God, we're seven years apart. And not I'm close to her now that I'm an adult. But I think the age thing really kept us close and what's interesting is I also feel like her struggle with addiction made us a little bit closer. So she um, would
0: open up to you about everything? Did she feel the need to hide?
1: More so through her sobriety and her healing, she opened up. Mm-hmm. Not so much when it was happening. So there was a lot of things that happened in high school that like I didn't know about. I've learned about now from stories and her sharing But then throughout college, like when I was in college for the four years, I think she was in rehab at least two times. Yeah, there was just really a, I feel like of all the family members, it was probably me that knew the most and that she confided in the most. And I could be wrong about that.
0: Mm -hmm. But yeah. What I, for those listening who've lived with somebody with addiction, I feel like a pattern I've noticed is when they're deep in their addiction, it's hard to feel close to that person. When they start playing with the idea of like sober curiosity or getting well, like it can be a very bonding thing. Was that true for you? Did you feel not as close when she was deep in it?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. Totally. I got, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I just keep sharing these like moments of time. But I remember, um, I don't know, at some point when I was in college, uh, Christmas, her and her boyfriend at the time, My, pa- this is the other thing too. And I'm not sure if you experienced this being somebody who loved an addict. It's so hard between the, the line of enabling versus being compassionate versus tough love. That's so hard. And my, my parents let my sister and her boyfriend come in and they were staying in our home in the basement, but we knew that they were both struggling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there was just this period of time where we had thought, again, like so much of addiction comes with, I feel like lying mm-hmm. is like a little sidekick buddy. We had thought that they were sober and it was Christmas Eve and my father found I know you said trigger warning at the beginning, but he found spoons and lighters mm-hmm. and needles down in their bedroom. And this was this moment where it's, okay, we enabled you up to this point to, we're going to give you a place, a safe place to stay, blah, blah, blah. But then it was like, then when they, I don't know, ruined that trust, Christmas Eve, my father called the cops on them. And the cops came to our home and they both received misdemeanors for possession of paraphernalia. Was that like, the first like consequence
0: or boundary you feel like your parents imposed? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And at, at that time too, I remember just feeling so, A, this is my sister. B, this is in my house. And how do I have no idea that this is happening? How do I have no idea that this is going on? So I felt super disconnected from mm-hmm. her and that. But yeah, so much to your point. It was like once she really started to get sober and at this point, God, this past Memorial Day was either eight or nine years that she's been sober, which is amazing. That's when our growth in closeness has happened over the last almost decade now. Wow. Wow. So that line,
0: whether it's a parent, usually it's a parent, or it can be a partner, right? If you're living with somebody with an addiction, it's what's that line of enabling versus setting boundaries? What advice do you have for somebody in your
1: position? I think that being somebody who's now, and I'm 33 years old and I have a child, and the personal development work that I've done, I truly believe that I would probably lean more into the tough love and boundary setting. I don't know that I would let my child continue to live with me if I knew that was mm-hmm. happening, that was the struggle. I understand multiple times my mom would say, but I, she's going to end up in jail or dead. Um, and while, of course, nobody wants that to happen, I feel like that night when my father called the cops, I feel maybe a night where you sleep on the sidewalk is exactly what you might need for you to have that wake-up call and be like, oh, shit. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, with the tough love, too, I think some people think it's either or where... It has If you're setting boundaries or drawing lines, that boundaries means it's like a, a spite thing or a punishment thing coming from that kind of energy. And it totally can be from an energy of love. My favorite definition of boundaries is Brene Brown. She says, boundaries are just the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously.
1: Yes, I've heard that before. I love it. And... and- can, can you not, like, as a parent, I can see how that struggle is so hard to, like, if I set to this boundary, if I do this tough love, it is interpreted as mm-hmm. a lack of love. I it's can, so hard. It's, yeah, yeah,
0: like, beyond tricky. Like, tricky feels like such a shallow word. It does. It's very complicated and messy. And the dynamic you were speaking to as well, like, just... I've seen the dynamic of an entire family bending towards the one or two individuals who are caught in their addiction. Like even you talking about Christmas, I have a cousin whose sister, so it was also my cousin, was deep in alcoholism, very similar it sounds to your sister, leading to a lot of other drugs. It led to a ton of blackout, like extremely dangerous nights. And for years, their family was just like you described, waiting for that phone call that she was dead because the kinds of situations she got herself into when she was drunk. It's seriously a miracle. She's alive today. And last I checked in, she's still alcohol free. It's been, gosh, I think eight years now but there was this dynamic of everyone's lives and needs and dreams put on hold or pause just like energy poured into her getting well and interestingly enough holidays being like the worst days she Mm. also had this history of that's when she would act out the most or that's Mm. when yeah nights like the cops being called or so my cousin who was the the sister watching her sister go through this, like just remembers we could never have a good holiday. Like holidays were always ruined and I always found that interesting. But was all of this, yeah, the case in your home, that kind of bending to, to fit?
1: 100%. So much so to the point where my parents' divorce or separation um, that occurred in 2014, and for reference, I was two years post-college then, multifaceted reasoning for that one being they were like in business together and there was financial stress around that. My dad's alcoholism and my sis, the way that they disagreed on how they should handle my sister's drug addiction is me looking back and being like, yep, that's my, my parents just couldn't, they couldn't navigate that together. And literally you're feeling like you're walking on eggshells and then eventually it becomes part of the reason that the family is actually broken up. And also, I think it's very interesting the fact that I'm the older sister. She was the middle sister struggling. And then we have this younger sister. And the differences and how each myself and the youngest sister portrayed and experienced all of this. Um, Just so, it's just mind boggling to me. Like, mind boggling to me.
0: And you talked about deceit, lying, being the friendly sidekick of addiction. I think another dynamic duo is you hear codependency and addiction. For those listening, just for definition's sake, codependency, it's a dysfunctional relationship dynamic where one person assumes the role of giver and ends up sacrificing their own needs and well-being for the sake of other the other, the taker or the addict, if that's what you're calling it. And then addiction, just because we've brought this term up a lot, I want to define it too. It's defined as a chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking, whatever that drug of choice is. It's not always heroin or an actual drug, but whatever your escape is. And the use, continual use, despite adverse consequences. So, you know, there's these terms, codependency, addiction, addiction. I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on labels in general? Are they helpful? Are they limiting? I know we started to talk about this a little online, and I'd love for you to just unpack your opinion on that.
1: Yeah, I'm very torn in the sense of, I think sometimes the label can help outsiders understand. But I also think that the label can cause outsiders to pose a judgment Mm -hmm. That may not necessarily actually be true and not in the sense of, for example, we'll use my sister. Like you could say, my sister was a heroin addict or at the time when she was actively using is a drug addict. But as soon as that label is there, you can't control what other people's thoughts are about that label. I think being somebody who had family members in that experience I very much went through multiple roller coaster rides of that I have a very empathetic point of view when I hear the term drug addict and also specifically for the fact that before all of this had happened my interpretation of somebody who was an addict in any way shape or form was somebody who maybe like had a broken family didn't live in a nice area Lower income household. These are literal, I don't know, just thoughts that I associated with that word. But then when my family went through it, Mm. as a family-owned business, we had a very nice house. In general, we really were like still a close-knit family. Like we did like movie nights and game nights. And there was no big T trauma necessarily outside of the addiction that my family was dealing with. Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, I was like, we're atypical of what somebody struggling with addiction looks like. So I just I struggle, and I've also used my personal experience with mental health in that same sense. Of here's the labels: depression, postpartum anxiety, somebody who's bipolar. You like, I feel like you would be lying if you don't say there's a word or two that I then associate with. If you're like, oh, somebody's bipolar. People have a natural thing that they go to when they think about that. Yeah. So in general, it's not really that much of an answer, but I'm super torn on. I feel like it's one of those things where it's, I think of it as a label and like a name sticker. Mm, Hello,
0: my name is.
1: Yes. Yes. And that can be like, it isn't the whole person's being. Yep. I totally agree.
0: And I agree with the, it's a tricky one. And it's like, I feel torn too. And I think it just depends on the person, on the situation and on how it makes you feel, right? Like towards that person, if it fosters more connection or if you notice it fostering more of a wedge between you, Mm -hmm. because in one sense, it can be helpful if a label or a term like, oh, codependent. Oh, wow. Okay. There's like, a word for it and I'm not alone in it and oh these tendencies I relate to wow it's giving vocabulary to what my experience has been like it can feel empowering Mm -hmm. but sometimes it can feel just as a personal example there was a a time in my life where I did stumble upon that word and I felt exactly like that but then it reached a point when I was healing and in this expansive place and having breakthroughs where I'm like that's actually feeling really limiting I feel like that term has reached its expiration date for me me and it's keeping me in a box. I'm not, hi, I'm Becky and I'm a codependent. No, I don't want to stay there. I, what if I actually could totally heal from this and be like fully functioning? And there's so much more to me, exactly like you said. It's, it's There's so much more to my pers- my person. And I think it's the same especially the word like addict, the more time has gone on, the more I cringe even at that term. No, they're not an addict because where my mind goes is that's energy of shame or of blame or like they're Mm. broken in some way. And I'm just like, they've just been through so much more than their nervous system has been able to cope with and they're doing the best they can and the things especially with drugs like heroin once you go down that path man that is really hard to detach from and pull away from so i i love your empathetic energy like towards all of this and i think it's an important conversation just to have
1: i'm I really love, too, that you just said there's an element, too, of certain drugs and the way that certain people's bodies are composed that they literally it's like you might. I don't want to use the term. I don't know if anybody necessarily sets up or goes after the fact of I'm going to be a heroin addict. I'm going to be an addict who consumes ecstasy. But unfortunately, some of those drugs are so strong and or the way that your body composition is that you can try it one time and then you're hooked or you're sucked in to the point where it's a chemical thing mm-hmm. in your body. And I think that my understanding of that is also why I have so much empathy also with the mental health stuff. It's not like you can just tell somebody like, oh, it's okay. Feel better. Like they literally can't. Mm hmm. And so I think that the understanding of it's a disease, it can be hereditary, all of those things. The fact that I do believe all of that helps me with the empathetic part and a little less of the judgment part.
0: And that empathetic part is what I've seen open the door for so much healing and so much recovery and sobriety and people like stepping into their most expansive version of themselves and not being constricted and boxed in and strangled by this attachment to whatever their addiction of choice is. I, I grew up in the home of, you could say a dry alcoholic again, hate the label, but just for people to understand what I grew up with. Her last drink was when I was one year old, one years old. But still a lot of the same like behaviors and ways of communicating as somebody who has escaped with alcohol for years. And so there was that. And then my listeners know in my marriage, our relationship, my relationship with Sebastian was one of me being like the codependent, controlling, terrified of abandonment and him like escaping with many different addictions over the years, just tried on new hats along the way. And I remember reading this one book called Unbroken Brain, and it was about addiction. And it was the first time that I felt like I got this really empathetic view of they're not broken or corrupt or evil, this loved one that is going through this. The brain has just been laid down certain tracks because of the ways that they have Associated stress with whatever this escape of choice is over yes. and over again. And at the same time, just as powerful as that connection was made in their brain and in their nervous system with stress trigger, go to this substance, it is also just as capable of rewiring and healing. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, okay, wow, like I don't have to view him, my husband, as like the enemy or your corrupt or all of those stigmas that we can attach and so the whole book was like we really need to rewrite this even as a society because that shame and that kind of judgment is what can fuel the addiction it adds fuel to the fire and so this empathetic approach with boundaries, right? Brene said, this is the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. I'm not going to neglect my own safety and my own emotional needs and well-being for the choices that you're making. This is what I have seen in my personal life and my clients be a pathway and an open door to actual healing. So that was a lot. Yes. But I'm curious for you, because I know that, man, it's been years of sobriety now for your sister. Is your dad sober
1: today or is he still drinking? So my it's such an interesting thing. And my sisters and I will talk about this. He drinks on a regular basis and he manages it. Uh-huh. And that feels weird to say uh-huh. because there's also this mentality of at least that I've heard and consumed, once an addict, always an addict. Whereas you have to Mm. continue day by day to fight this thing. So it makes, I'm in this place where I question, okay, then what was this five years of sobriety from? I don't know. It's just a really interesting dynamic. Like there, it, it, it isn't, I don't even know words to put with it. Like it's not irresponsible drinking. It's not drinking to black out. It's not drinking that results in anger. So, I feel almost contradictory to be like, "Yes, my father who was sober now drinks, but it's okay." Huh? I'm tracking. <laughs> that feels so weird to say, but it's it. I think that's where we're we're at. And for years, it has been. <laughs> That statement of once an addict, always
0: an addict. Do you agree with that? What are your feelings towards that?
1: I. That's so hard. It's so
0: hard. (laughs) I'm hitting you with the hard ones today, Courtney.
1: The reason being because my sister, who was, she had the, she had multiple addictions, right? Drugs, alcohol, et cetera, was like, every day I have to wake up and make a choice. In that sense, I'm like, okay, the saying then is real. You have to make a choice every single day. You're never fully recovered. It's so but it, interesting. I, I just feel like the saying of once an addict, always an addict is so disempowering.
0: I feel like we need to have a whole separate episode titled <laughs> Once an Addict, Always an Addict, True good. or Not, because I could go on a really long tangent <laughs> with this one. It's a good question, food for thought. I agree with you, like the trickiness and the duality right now that you're juggling. And I also know the power of nervous system repair and exactly what you said how disempowering, how limiting that can feel and sound. And I think that's because it is. (laughs) So we'll have to shelf that one for another time. But even with my own relationship with alcohol, my audience knows through the pandemic, that was when our marriage was really falling apart. And I threw myself, similar to you, the type one, into hyperachieving. And that's where I found happiness, an area where I felt like, at least I'm good at this because I felt like I was failing at parenting, failing at my marriage. But I also started drinking more because everyone was during the pandemic. They're like posting on Instagram, it's five o'clock somewhere, world's on lockdown, might as well start now. (laughs) And... It became very normalized, especially for moms. Can't wait for their five o'clock wine, all of that.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yep.
0: And it got to a point where over the years, my tolerance got scary high. Like it got to, I wasn't a blackout drunk. I wasn't binge drinking. Like I actually, the most I would feel since the pandemic over the years was like a good buzz every now and then. But it would take more and more for me to even get there. So it got to the point where three glasses of wine for me did nothing. It felt Mm. totally normal. And that's when it started to get a little scary. And about three, four months ago, I started to have a bad reaction to alcohol. Like I took a sip of an old-fashioned and I had an allergic reaction. Like it felt like my throat was closing up. I felt dizzy. I was like, is this alcohol? Surely not tried it again the next day, took a sip of white wine, same thing. Oh my gosh, yeah. weird. Tried the same thing the next day, tried red wine. Like I was trying different ones to be like, right. and I knew in my gut, I was like, I really think my body is just saying you have had enough of this. Mm-hmm. It is, this is too much. Went to a holistic doctor. She was starting to show my liver had, you know, numbers that were like, there's too much. We need to detox. And so yes. all of this is a wake-up call. And ever since I I went like a month without drinking, that was the first like month straight that I went without alcohol since the pandemic. But I'm bringing all this up to say to your point where like you say your dad's still drinking now, and but it's okay, is because I've had to play with that same idea. I've had drinks since since that allergic reaction thing, it's no longer giving me an allergic reaction. I think my body is like, Ooh, thank you. You gave us a break. We, we just needed that. Yeah. But I've had a glass of wine out with friends and here and there, and it has given me that same tricky question of, wait, is this bad? Is this a yeah. sign that I'm not sober or whatever? Cause it's so black and white and there's a lot of stigma attached and a lot of shame that I'm trying to work through. And even like my husband who sees me like through all of this and I've talked to him about it. I'm like, what's he going to think if I want to have a glass of wine? And so where I'm at now is I do affirmations every morning. And what I say is for the first time in my adult life, I have the healthiest relationship with alcohol I've ever had. Mm. And that relationship doesn't have to mean zero. Like maybe for some people, a healthy relationship is Learning to have every now and then, or whatever feels healthy to you. And so, for your dad, just because of his track record and his history, doesn't mean that he can't have a healthy relationship with it now. That's the point that I'm making. And I'm not saying this is law, this is just like all of my internal digging and reflecting and where I've landed on it. I very much agree with all of that. Mm -hmm. So, Gosh, this was a great conversation. Courtney, thank you so much for your time. We've got to have a part two. But is there any last words you want to leave to listeners who may relate completely to what you have gone through?
1: I think the first, I'll say two things. The first is that really separating yourself from the situation, especially if somebody is actively in your life and love using or experiencing this because we were just talking about this and I don't want to go on a a rant about it but just the number of times that I would have a drink and feel like oh this isn't okay but it's possible for everybody to have a different relationship with whatever it is alcohol or whatever that I love the term healthy like you can have a healthy relationship with it it's not that all alcohol is bad it's not that everybody needs to not drink So just understand that you are your own being. But then the second thing I will say is like boundaries is such a big deal in not only with the person who may or may not be struggling, but also just with yourself, Um, how much access you give to that person, to, to your life, to your emotions, because it can be so easy to be sucked in to whatever it is that they're going through, whatever it is that they're dealing with. But especially here is the people who are listening to this podcast episode. We're grown adults, right? We have our own lives. We have our own people to take care of and not necessarily putting blinders on, but realizing you can't, again, if it's, especially if it's another adult in your life, spouse, sister, close friend, you literally can't fix them. And like with my sister, my parents set her to rehab multiple times It wasn't until something internally with her was ready that things began to change for her. So
0: powerful. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable. Like I know this just helped so many people feel less alone and some practical direction along with it. And Courtney, for those who would love to just share their takeaways with you, where can they find you or even learn more about um, what you do for women and the clients that you serve?
1: Yes. So I have a personal Instagram account. It's just my name, Courtney underscore Winziki. So definitely there to send a DM would be a great place. I love just connecting or hearing people's stories in a little bit more of the professional entrepreneur side of me. You can check out my podcast, which is Confetti Worthy Women or my Instagram account, which is confetti.worthy.women. And that's just really with a focus of celebrating and resourcing women who are entrepreneurial.
0: I love it. I love that title so much. So guys, go check her out. I'll include all of this in the show notes. And thank you so much for the conversation today, Courtney. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Uh, I'm honored you found today's episode worth your listen and time to hang out with me today. You know, for some of us, this podcast is just the thing you need to support you towards your breakthrough. But for others, we know we need a deeper level of support and guidance. So if you're a highly ambitious woman who's ready to repair deep unshakable connection in your marriage, I'd love to tell you about my client coaching program called Root to Rise. This is the life-changing transformational container that will teach you exactly how to launch your marriage to the next level by moving trauma out of your body and stepping back into your power. Even if you've already tried everything, even if you're caught on the fence of should I stay or should I go, and even if your husband's not on board today. So look for my link in the show notes to book a call with me and we'll just talk about what's working, what's not, where you want to go. And very easily, I'll be able to tell you if and how I can help you. And if not me, I can still point you in the direction of some resources that can. So either way, tons of clarity. We'll have some fun getting to know each other while we're at it. And that's it for today. Huge hugs, my friend. I'll chat with you next Friday.